God's word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Read that far in God's word. As as we've seen in our recent studies of chapters 11 and 12 here, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes have been taking turns asking Jesus tricky questions. Uh, Jesus, the great teacher and our Savior, has fielded all these questions and has shown a concern for the crowd to get the true teaching that they need. It brings us to our main point that Jesus invited thought and decision when he taught provocatively about his own two natures, God and man, showing this in the word of God through both David and the Spirit. So first we'll see how, since no one dared ask Jesus any more questions from verse 34, now it was Jesus' turn to ask a question in order to teach them two essential truths about himself. second point will be that Jesus taught from David's writings in Psalm 110, verse 1, how to harmonize two seemingly contradictory Bible truths that Jesus is actually both David's son and David's Lord and the Christ, leading to an essential and profound understanding. And third, Jesus showed that the scribes should have but did not understand, believe, or teach this crucial truth from the Word of God and the Spirit of God regarding who Jesus truly is. So first, our first point, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions from verse 34, and now it was Jesus' turn to ask a question in order to teach them two essential truths about himself. I want you to remember a couple things. Number one, remember when Jesus was teaching. He was talking with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes for the very last time in our passage, since I want you to remember when this is. Jesus would be crucified that Friday. He had cleared the temple Monday, so this is Tuesday of that week. Remember when this teaching lands. Secondly, remember where Jesus was teaching. Verse 35 is very clear. It taught us, it was the first thing that we're reading in our passage, that Jesus taught in the temple. It's significant, which is why Mark tells us this. We are reminded again that he's in the temple and will remain in the temple to teach until his dramatic exit. If you look ahead to chapter 13, verse 1, it's dramatic. We'll study that later, Lord willing, when Jesus will declare that one stone of this temple will not be left on another. He's coming, actually, to announce he is the replacement for the temple. I want you to remember where he's teaching. He's teaching in the temple. When he's teaching, where he's teaching. And thirdly, remember to whom he's teaching. Yes, there's crowds there, but there's also these opponents, these ones who have just been questioning him. The scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees are there. Previously, we read and studied here in chapter 12 of Mark's gospel, the enemies of Jesus in verse 13 tried to trap Jesus in his talk. Then in verse 15, that Jesus knew their hypocrisy. In fact, Jesus confronted the scribes openly when he said in verse 24 of our chapter, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And again in verse 27 of our chapter, Jesus said to them, you are quite wrong. So there's a verbal showdown happening between Jesus and these um, leaders in 
the presence of other crowds as well. So remember whom, to whom Jesus was teaching. His enemies reached a point in verse 34 that, as we have said, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. And lastly, I want you to remember what Jesus was teaching. Jesus brought the discussion back to the scriptures. Not these trick questions that they've been asking him. Now he's exegeting a passage of scripture with important lessons for them from it. Specifically, what the scriptures teach about himself. How do we get more important than the Son of God himself teaching from the Word of God about himself? This is a pretty cool passage. It's got to be central to what the Bible's all about and what we need to know about God. It's why Mark recorded the passage for us. So it's significant. So here in verse 35 comes the question now of Jesus. We've got those things in mind. We're back up to speed. Here we are in verse 35, and the question Jesus asks how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, he'll go on to define that question further, but let's just pause here. The, the scribes had been teaching that the Christ is the son of David. There's actually no problem there. The Christ, the Messiah, will be the son of David. Yeah, the Old Testament made that very clear. The coming Messiah was to be born from David's royal line. For example, well-known passage, Second. Samuel 7, 13, God said about David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Yeah, the Messiah will be the son of David. So what is Jesus asking? This is important. Listen carefully. I've, I've tried to say this in a very succinct way, if you can grasp what's saying, was happening here. Jesus was not questioning the accuracy of the statement of the scribes. But rather, Jesus was questioning the adequacy of their statement. Not questioning the accuracy of their statement. It was true as far as it went. He was questioning the adequacy of their statement. Did it go far enough? Let me say it differently. In other words, the question that Jesus poses here is not whether the Messiah is the son of David, because certainly the Messiah is the son of David. Rather, his question is whether the Messiah is only the son of David, and nothing else. Let me say it yet another way. This is so important. Is the Messiah more than the son of God is the issue. So this truth about who the Messiah is, who Jesus is, should have been clear to the scribes from their own study of the scriptures. These are Bible professionals. It's what they do. They didn't know how to interpret the Bibles with regard to the Messiah. They missed it. And this is not some Bible trivia. This is not some small topic at the periphery. This topic was a matter of their core and blessed hope, the very identity of the Messiah. So by Jesus asking the scribes this question, asking the crowd this question about what the scribes believe, he's pointing out that it ought not to be surprising that what's happening right in front of the crowd is that the scribes cannot identify the Messiah even when I'm standing right in front of them. That's what's happening. He's showing that they can't know who the Messiah is from the scriptures, so therefore they can't know who the Messiah is when he's right in front of them. What a shocking lack of knowledge for the scribes. And he's exposing that. By this question, he's exposing the scribes for their lack of knowledge of scriptures, resulting in the lack of understanding and the lack of recognition of Christ. 
The scriptures were given in order to teach people about Christ by types and figures and prophecy until Christ himself would come and would appear on earth. The experience of Christ on earth and later his sufferings during his first coming into the world were recorded in the Old Testament. For example, we can read in the Old Testament about Jesus' death, his resurrection, his future glory, his final triumph yet to come, his second coming. These are many topics in Scripture and even in the Psalms. The scribes should have looked for Christ as much as they looked for David when they studied the Psalms. These two essential truths that they should have known and learned about the Messiah is that he's both David's son and David's Lord. He's both God and man, as we later have it put in the Westminster Standards. God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. And it brings us to our second point. He taught from David's writing now, Psalm 110, verse 1, how to harmonize two seemingly contradictory Bible truths, that Jesus is actually both David's son and David's Lord or the Christ, leading to an essential and profound understanding. So I want you to notice how Jesus proceeds forward. He asked his questions, verse 35, and then he backs it up or expounds on it, beginning in verse 36. He says, David himself... Right? He, he didn't start with the content of Psalm 110. He's about to get there, and you see the quotation marks, but there's something important he lay, lays out first. He started instead with teaching who it is that's writing this psalm. You might think that's easy, right? The title of the psalm, 110, gives it away. You could even turn there. It's pretty obvious. It correctly informs us all as we read a psalm of David across the top of it. Everyone agreed that David is the one who wrote a Psalm 110. That, that's not even the debate. But what was important for Jesus to teach the crowd is that David wasn't writing on his own. There's some crucial words to read next in verse 36. Again, Jesus' questioning here is not their accuracy, but their adequacy. Isn't there another author too for Psalm 110? Note carefully what Jesus taught next in verse 36, that David was not speaking and writing alone. Do you see it in verse 36? I'll read it again. David himself, comma, in the Holy Spirit, comma, declared. I submit to you that's powerfully significant. Jesus is saying to the scribes, he's saying to the crowds, he's saying to the Pharisees and all who are listening, there's a second author. It's not just written by David, it's written by God the Holy Spirit also. That scripture has a human author and a divine author. This passage seals that for us. As the apostle Peter later mimicked Christ and wrote, 2 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men, listen, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. End quote, 2 Peter 1.21. The Spirit of God had the task of ensuring what the human authors wrote was exactly what and exactly how God wanted each of them to write each word, each verse, each, each phrase, each chapter of Scripture. Well, you might ask, why wouldn't Jesus just teach that the Holy Spirit wrote Psalm 110? Why not just say, as the Spirit says, as is said in other passages of Scripture, the Spirit says this, and so on. Why is it also so important that Jesus remind them that David wrote Psalm 110? I'm glad you asked. 
Because what is key for the proper interpretation of this verse is the fact that the content was written by David from David's perspective. That's key for interpreting, as you'll see in a moment. Listen carefully to Mark 12, 36 now, where Jesus quoted Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, if we say there, there's a car with the lights on, you might say, is it my car? Well, I'm sorry, who said that? Who, who said, is it my car? It's crucially significant to know who's speaking. When you say, my Lord, well, who's Lord? We have to know who's speaking in order to identify who's Lord. So the answer to the puzzle of the interpretation of this verse is centered on identifying the human author. David is the one who wrote this which helps us know who the second Lord is, the my Lord of the verse. The first Lord is obvious. I mean, that's a reference to the Lord God of Israel, who would be God the Father, right? As you see the verse, the Lord, that's the Father, God the Father. And since the Lord is God the Father, then who's this second Lord, my Lord? Because it was David who's writing, we clearly understand who David would refer to as my Lord. It can only be a reference to Someone who would have more authority than David. Well, who would have more authority than David? He's the king. Top dog. Who's above him? No one. Or is there? He's speaking of the true king, the heavenly king, the coming anointed one. Anointed in English, we use the Greek word Christ. We use the Hebrew word Messiah. It's Jesus. David understood who his Lord was. My Lord is the coming Messiah. He also understood that this statement within Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand, is a reference to authority and power and rule in the name of a higher king above you. We all salute to somebody. We all answer to somebody. David understood who he takes orders from. This phrase, sit at my right hand, it means complete triumph and victory. The phrase here um, that until I put your enemies under your feet is expressive of that triumph and that victory of the greater king. The conqueror's feet could be placed on the neck of the defeated one. One example from scripture, Joshua 10.24, when they brought those kings out out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings then they came near and put their feet on their necks, Joshua 10, 24. You know what that's like. It's, it's like little boys who are constantly wrestling, other little boys, right? And if you're still able to fight, you say, get your feet off of me, and you wrestle around some more. But if you're just not able to fight anymore, if they really got you, you just lay there. And if they put their feet on your tummy, they put their feet on your tummy. And if they put their feet on your neck, they put your feet on your neck because you can't do anymore. You're stuck. We understand what this power refers to. It's a symbol that means God the Father would appoint the Lord Jesus Christ to serve as the king of the kingdom of God, and Jesus would therefore be commanded to enter the world, to enter into the battle against God that happens here, to secure the victory for God's kingdom, and then come back to heaven to take the victor's seat of honor. All of that is tucked within Psalm 110, verse 1, that Jesus here quotes. The Lord said to my Lord, that God the Father said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. It's talking about the cross. It's talking about the gospel, the victory of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. 
And at that point, Jesus would then wait until God the Father would bring an end to world history and bring all of God's enemies in full subjection to Jesus. Wait till you see it. So Psalm 110 is significant. It's powerfully significant. It later became the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. I submit to you it's because of this passage. It's because of this event. It's because of this teaching of Jesus on this day that Matthew and Mark and Luke all write about. The apostles take a cue from the greatest teacher, Jesus, and use well Psalm 110, verse 1. It's quoted or alluded to 27 times in the New Testament. I don't even have time to quote half of them to you tonight. And every generation of the church has celebrated this psalm. For example, in the 1500s, the reformer, Pastor Martin Luther, wrote 120 pages about Psalm 110. And it all started when Jesus, here in this passage, taught in the temple. And the great teacher wanted to draw all of our attention to Psalm 110, verse 1. And within the Gospel of Mark, this title, Son of David, was first stated by a blind man, Bartimaeus, back in chapter 10, verses 47 to 48. Of course, symbolic that even the blind man could see that Jesus is the Son of David. We remember from our careful study then of chapter 10 that Jesus did not suppress the statement made by the blind man. He didn't say to Bartimaeus, oh, no, 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 don't say that. I could never be the Son of David. I mean, that's such a royal title. No, he accepted it, you see. And then again, the crowd shouted it in chapter 11, verse 10, Son of David. Officially, the term shows which man of this generation now possesses the right to that ancient throne of David. Remember that context. Those listeners then who shouted together as a crowd, Son of David, had, were well aware that Jesus had this ostentatiously royal ride into the city on a colt, replete with shouts of Hosanna and a statement about the coming kingdom of David. Remember from our careful study there in chapter 11, Jesus also did not curb the crowd. He didn't put his hands up and say, Stop, no, please, please don't worship me. He accepted it as quite appropriate for himself. Yes, yes, in fact, I am the son of David. You have that right. He, he found references acceptable and appropriate. In fact, the manner in which Jesus approached the city actively encouraged such language and references from the crowd as he was fulfilling scripture. However, the main point is still abundantly clear. Christ is to be understood as David's son and, and, and David's Lord. Son of David, yes, but equally true, David's Lord. Brings us to our third point. Jesus showed the scribes should have, but did not understand, believe, or teach this crucial truth from the word of God and the spirit of God concerning who Jesus truly is. Listen to it now in verse 37. Jesus said, David himself calls him Lord. How is he David's son? He's teaching provocatively. He's poking at him. He's saying, you're saying David's son. Okay, but David's saying Lord. Which is it? How do you rectify that? He wants them to arrive at their own conclusion. Oh, it's both David's son and David's Lord. And here's a problem, see, that Jesus raised that no one saw until Jesus raised it. 
course, he raised it on purpose. The Bible is filled with truth from God. He had answered all their unanswerable questions. He hit them out of the park. And now it's his turn to ask them a question, and they find his question unanswerable. The Bible presents the clear answer that Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord. At the same time, the scribes seemed to make a mistake, which is understanding why Jesus bring this issue up in order to challenge them to reflect and think and learn. Think about this. Would any father call his grandson, my Lord, sir, master? How could the great King David speak of his future great-great-grandson, Jesus, as David's Lord? David's words in Psalm 110 don't work unless the Messiah is both God and man. If he's just a human being, it doesn't work. He must be more, more than just human, more than just son of David. It's what the scribes and the crowds failed to see. It's what Jesus was teaching them. It's of crucial significance for all believers in God, all students of Scripture. Jesus never studied in their schools, but he confounded all of them and brought riches out from Scripture, proved it from Scripture, and they still couldn't grasp it. You know what's fascinating? I can't wait to tell you this. This title, Son of David, that we've been studying, this is the last time it appears in the Gospel of Mark. Is that fascinating to you? It doesn't occur again, this title, Son of David, in Mark's Gospel from here to the end of the Gospel of Mark. I think we better understand why that is. Every Christian both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians ever since the middle of the first century would have assumed that Jesus is the son of David. It's a no-brainer. The scriptures clearly teach this. If it was Mark's intention in this passage and in the coming chapters to challenge that belief and say maybe he isn't the son of David, if that's why the title disappears, then Mark would have had to take a whole lot more direct approach than what we see in our passage tonight. Mark would have had to go back and rewrite chapter 10, verses 47 to 48, the whole thing with Bartimaeus. He would have had to go back and rewrite the whole Palm Sunday story in chapter 11, and especially verse 10, because they clearly teach that Jesus is the son of David. I submit to you, rather, there's two reasons why Mark ceased using the title son of David here. Number one, the title son of David was true but liable to misunderstandings about Jesus becoming some political leader. What they wanted was somebody like David take the reins, get the army going, throw the Romans off their back. That's what they wanted. And if you keep saying son of David, they're just going to keep going there automatically in their mind. And the second reason, Mark, stops using the title Son of David is because of our passage in verse 37 where Jesus himself said, David himself calls him Lord. You see what we have here? To fill the gap left by no longer using the title Son of David for the rest of the book, there has to be some way to refer to him instead. And Jesus himself suggests David himself calls me Lord. How about that? Let's use that instead of son of David. Isn't that fascinating? It suggests what 
we should do because we do what David did. Namely, we refer to Jesus as Lord. He's still the son of David. That's ever so true. And we don't have the same temptation to think of him as a military leader the way they did in those days. Verse 37 then ended with a statement. The great throng heard Jesus gladly. Hearing Jesus gladly is not faith. Glad hearing doesn't get him into the kingdom of God any more than in the previous passage. If you remember, the scribe was acknowledging Jesus. Yes, teacher, he called him, and you're right, teacher. Didn't get him into the heaven. The scribe, as Jesus said, was not far from the kingdom, which is not in the kingdom. So if you can call Jesus teacher and correct and right, but not have faith, you can also be part of the crowd that heard him gladly but did not yet have faith. Not enough to say that Jesus is right. Not enough to hear him gladly. They're expected by verse 37 to confess that Jesus is Lord. Until you get there, you don't have faith. He is Lord. So what have we seen tonight? That Jesus invited thought. He invited decision when he taught provocatively about his own two natures, both God and man, showing this in the word of God through both David and the Spirit. I have two concluding applications to us. Number one, be comforted to know that Jesus, just a few days before his most bitter agony on that Friday, was fully aware that the cross would lead him to the crown. You ever grieve about the Lord Jesus in the what we call the Passion Week, the Holy Week? The, the week leading up to his crucifixion on that Friday? Did you ever grieve about him? Be comforted about that in that grief. He knew post-cross his crown. After the cross, he becomes the king, Messiah. He's anointed as the king of all, the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is more than the man who took our sins upon himself on the cross. He's also that great and victorious king of kings who exercised control over all aspects on Monday when he turned the tables, on Tuesday when he had this teaching, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, even upon the cross where it stood on Friday, including the audiences there and the audiences here. He's the Lord. The Messiah, the Son of David, the Christ, he he came to fulfill the task which God the Father had assigned to him. Be comforted to know that Jesus, just a few days before his bitter agony, was fully aware who he is and the power that he has and the power into which he's coming and the task that he's fulfilling. Some in this great throng of verse 37 who heard Jesus gladly on Tuesday would say what on Friday? Crucify him! They hear him gladly on Tuesday, and they shout crucify him on Friday. Though crucifixion was necessary for our salvation, our devotion to him requires of us to repent of such hypocritical flip-flopping. You can't say one thing on Tuesday and say the opposite on Friday and call yourself a devotee, a follower of Christ. We're called to worship him as Lord, king over all. He's Greater than David. David's son, yes, but he is David's Lord. God, yet man. He's the most important topic of all time. Who is Jesus? Jesus had raised us all the way back in chapter 8, 27 with his disciples when Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? The people, the crowds, got it wrong. 
So Jesus asked a second time, Mark 8, 29, Who do you say I am? Peter answered for the crowd, he, uh, for the disciples, he answered for the group, the disciples, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus strictly charged, charged them at that time to tell no one about this. But now, now in the last week, now just days before the crucifixion, it was time for Jesus to bring it up publicly, to announce it to everybody gathered, and to make it clear from Scripture and by the Spirit He knew this would raise the stakes. It's part of what led to his crucifixion because it's time. With the cross just days away, the time had arrived for truth to be made clear. Be comforted to know that Jesus knew all about this as he headed to the bitter agony. And second application, consider Jesus as your Lord as part of your very identity. Consider Jesus as Lord is not just something we call him, but it's who we are. We are those who have this Lord. We are those who obey this Lord. We are those who are saved and redeemed by this Lord. We are those who are going where this Lord is. We are those who have him promising to come to take us home. We can read the Bible about who Jesus is. You could sit and hear a sermon about who Jesus is. You could hear truth gladly, as the crowd did without ever surrendering to it, without ever fully absorbing it and letting it define who you are. So many people are raised in the church. So many people attend worship services and sing the the songs we sing and accept the truth that Jesus is the Lord as a point of teaching. But it's so deeper than that. It's a point of identity. Listen, either Jesus is Lord over your life or he's nothing to you. Let it be the defining thing about you. Jesus tasted death for you. That defines who you are to the core. You're alive in Christ the Lord by faith. Hebrews 2.9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2.9. Consider Jesus as your Lord, as part of your identity. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for